Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So welcome everybody. It's great to have you here. Uh, my name is Henry Brady. I'm the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, it's with uh, really great pleasure that I uh, welcome you here tonight for the third annual Michael Nacht Distinguished Lecture in Politics and Public Policy. It's an annual address generously supported and funded by the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund. We are fortunate tonight for the opportunity to hear from Chancellor's Professor Robert Reich. Bob does so many things well, I don't actually have any idea where he gets the time to do it. Let me just start with the thing that you might not imagine, uh, that somebody of all of his running around and doing all the extraordinary things he does, that he does so well, and that is he teaches very well and really is committed to it and really contributes an extraordinary amount to this university. He does it by teaching a leadership class to our Masters of Public Policy students. Nobody exemplifies leadership better than Bob Reich. Uh, this is a great opportunity for our students to find out how a real leader acts as a leader, and he teaches our students how to think that way, and I think that's a tremendous contribution to our program because our students, by and large, go on and work either in the nonprofit sector or in government. So learning how to be policy entrepreneurs, like Bob Reich, tough thing to do, but learning some of that, at least, is extraordinarily important for them. The other thing he does is teach a very large undergraduate class. This year, I think at one point there were 1,000 people signed up to take this course, and unfortunately, the room they had was only 750 people, one of the largest rooms on campus. Uh, so the demand is uh, overflowing for this course. It's a course on wealth and poverty, and it's one of the most notable courses here on campus. I'm sure there's some students. Any students in the audience who take this course? Yeah, we've got a bunch. Good. I hope you're having fun. Uh, watching Bob lecture is, is just great. And the truth is he doesn't lecture. He actually sort of does it with interaction with students and so forth. It's quite an extraordinary performance. So Bob does that for us. But also, as you know very well, he's been a contributing editor of the New Republic, Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, uh, The New York Times. He's contributed to The Wall Street Journal. And he's a founding editor of The American Prospect. You can hear him as a political commentator on Hardball with Chris Matthews. I, I never know when I turn on my TV when I'm going to see Bob. It's sort of fun. I wish I could keep track of all my faculty that way. <laughs> Uh, he, this week with George Stephanopoulos, the ABC show on Sunday morning, uh, CNBC's Kudlow and Company, and APM's uh, Marketplace, and Fox News. Uh, so in 2008, Time Magazine named him one of the 10 best cabinet members of the century. Really extraordinary, 10 best. And, they, and this is also amazing. The Wall Street Journal, of all sources, in 2008 placed him sixth on its list of the most influential business thinkers. I, I, sometimes I wish he had even more influence than that on the Wall Street Journal and other business affairs. He served on President-elect Barack Obama's Economic Transition Advisory Board. He's published 13 books including the bestsellers, The Work of Nations, uh, Supercapitalism, and most recently, Aftershock, The Next Economy, and America's Future. He's also chairman of Common Cause and writes his own blog about the political economy at robertreich.org. You can get on and 
uh, read that uh, on a daily basis. He does everything. He teaches. He's an exemplary faculty member in terms of service. He has got a national reputation and visibility that's unparalleled. Uh, I would say that he is the voice of the left in America right now. He is the person who most cogently, most clearly puts together the case for what the left is thinking, should be thinking, and should be doing. And so without further ado, let me welcome, please join me in welcoming uh, Bob Reich. Well, I, I, I want to thank uh, Henry Brady, uh, Dean Brady, for that uh, extraordinary introduction. Uh, and uh, I just want to say that it's been a privilege to work, Henry, with you. Uh, talk about leadership. I do talk about leadership. I teach a course, as Henry said, in leadership. And uh, this man is an exemplary leader. I, 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 don't, I can't find, I've worked with a lot of deans before, Henry, uh, including this dean over here, <laughs> Michael Nasht. And uh, I don't want to compare the two of you. That would be invidious. But you are truly wonderful. The only fault... Better than George W. Bush. You're better than George W. Bush. <laughs> you're too big. <laughs> no, I, that's really the only uh, fault I, I pick with Henry. He, uh, his, his, his carbon footprint is too big. Uh, you know, my, I, on the other hand, have, I think, just about the smallest carbon footprint in Berkeley... Uh, and as to Michael Nacht and Marjorie Nacht, well, where to begin? I, don't, I could spend the next hour talking about... <laughs> Michael just went like this, suggesting that I not. But let me do... I mean, one, one thing that Michael did do... I, I would not be here at Berkeley were it not for Michael uh, t uh, telling me or calling me or suggesting to me very strongly that I come out to visit out here in 2004... And uh, I had been, I didn't know much about Berkeley. I knew about Berkeley a little bit, but I, and I had been here a little personal history. I had been, I had visited the University of California at Berkeley for one summer uh, in the summer of 1968. John, you remember. In fact, uh, well, we won't go into that. Uh, and I, but I do remember, I, I was, I, I, my introduction to Berkeley was coming up University Avenue, and I remember distinctly in my little uh, brown, no, it was a little blue beat-up Volkswagen, it was almost uh, iconic, and I was coming up, and suddenly I got this aroma of, of, of eucalyptus, and, you know, mixed with marijuana, and, and tear gas, and it was... And the whole thing was, was so intoxicating that I, I, I just, I drifted that whole summer. I don't remember anything about the summer at all. I was a, a teaching assistant for a, a professor of architecture. That shows you how far some people come. Uh, and, uh, but I said, I've got to get back. I, I didn't remember a thing about the summer, but I, I knew that I had to get back. And it was Michael Nacht who suggested that I, that I come back. And I, I, I got here. Uh, and, uh, well, the only other thing I want to say is, is that over those years, from 1968 to 2004 or 2000, or even right now, uh, and this is a message really for our dean who just accused me. Did you hear him? He accused me of being a mouthpiece of the left. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that? 
I distinctly heard it. Let me make clear to everybody, including our dean, that since 19, before 60, since 1963 or 62, I have not changed my centrist position at all. The rest of the country has moved to the right. No, this is true. I have not moved. I, I, beginning in the 60s, there was a movement in this country, unfortunately, to the right, leaving me and some of you, I assume, some of you, some of the people in Berkeley, uh, more alone than we were before. Isn't that true? So I am a mouthpiece of the center, the old center. Uh, now, I don't know how many of you said, anybody, a show of hands, how many of you saw the debate last night, speaking of which, between uh, the Republican debate I'm talking about? Put up your hands proudly. So I would say a majority of you did not see it. Uh, I saw it on and off. I, 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 I've seen the Republican debates, and I, this is not a, a, a partisan forum, and I'm, I'm now being, I really am trying to be very objective. I have not found the debates terribly edifying. Uh, <laughs> now, that, I was being completely serious about that. No, just in the sense that, I mean, I, I understand that uh, they want to cut taxes on the wealthy, uh, primarily, and they want to cut uh, a lot of social programs that benefit the middle class and the poor. I, I get that, and I get the fact that they don't like government, and I understand that, uh, but this has been pretty much the Republican platform since the 1920s. So, I, so when I say not edifying, I don't mean that in a denigrating way. I just mean I haven't, I'm not learning very much. Now, by contrast, the Democratic debates have not existed <laughs> because we have an incumbent. So it's not been a, a, I mean, there's not very much to compare it to. Uh, I think the election, if you want me to make a prediction, would you like me to make a prediction right now? The election uh, next November is going to be won by Barack Obama. And it's going to be overwhelming. But wait, no. This is a nonpartisan <laughs> discussion. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's going to be one, number one, because the economy uh, is going to continue to improve slightly. Now, we're not going to see a vigorous recovery. It's just not in the cards. Because consumers do not have the wherewithal to generate the kind of demand necessary for a vigorous recovery. Uh, and that's a terrible problem, because when you've been down so deeply, when you're in such a deep hole as we have been uh, since, 19, since 2008, you really do need a vigorous recovery. I mean, I'm talking about 3, 4, 5, 6% growth per year to get back on the track you were on before. Uh, in 1934, I mean, 1933 was the depth of the, of the, the bottom of the, of the Great Depression. 1934, the economy grew about 4 or 5%, depending upon whose measurements you believe. 1935, it was about 8%. 1936, the economy grew 
I mean, we're talking, uh, right now, the best prediction for this year is 2.8%, but again, these estimates keep on shrinking. I will be surprised if we get better than 2.2%. That's not enough to bring unemployment way down. Uh, we're probably going to have unemployment that is still very close to 8%. In fact, one of the ironies of this year is that as the labor market improves, slowly, more and more people decide that they're going to actually go out and find a job. People who are on the edge of the labor market. People who really do need a job, but have been too discouraged to even look for work. So they start looking for work, and perversely, the way we measure unemployment in this country is the number of people who are looking for work. And so, paradoxically and perversely, what we're likely to see is unemployment hovering around 8, maybe even increasing to 82 8.3, 8.4% by election day if things continue to improve. That's one of the ironies, and it tried to explain that in a 10-second commercial. But nevertheless, I think people really are feeling better, and consumer confidence a sense of going in the right direction for a change, getting out of the ditch, uh, as Barack Obama used to, has liked to use as a, as a metaphor, all of that is going to be very helpful to him. Uh, I think that the housing crisis is probably going to continue. Housing prices have just about reached bottom, but that's going to continue to be a problem. And nothing the administration has come up with yet is getting us out of that housing problem. That's a huge drag on the economy right now. Uh, gas prices. People ask me, what's going to happen to gas prices? Well, gas prices are probably going up. They're going up because, ironically, the global economy is recovering. The United States is recovering. When you have a recovery, even a slight recovery, even an anemic recovery, demand goes up. Even if you didn't have the problems of Iran and the saber-rattling over uh, the Straits of Hormuz. You're still going to have increasing demand. That means that speculators are going to be placing bets on crude oil getting more and more expensive, and that's exactly what's going on right now. How are rising gas prices going to affect the election? Well, it's not going to be pretty. Consumers are extremely sensitive to gas prices. But here's another prediction. Just like happened last May, we're going to see gas prices spike and then drop almost as quickly. Why? Because it's a speculative bubble. It's a speculative bubble that really could turn around very easily if one of an, any number of things happens. Uh, one thing that I expect, for example, is that China's growth is going to slow even more dramatically. And if China's growth slows, then oil demand drops dramatically, the de uh, demand for all commodities. So add all of this up and throw in the European debt crisis, which looks like it's probably improving. Uh, the big problem with Europe and the debt crisis was not exports from the United States in terms of the United States economy. The big problem with the European debt crisis was America's financial sector and how much exposure our banks had to big banks in Europe that were heavily exposed to Greece and to Italy and still are. Uh, but nevertheless, I believe Italy and Greece 
uh, certainly Italy, probably Greece, going to, there's going to be enough of a bailout, enough of an arrangement uh, in Europe to hold things off for a while. I mean, Europe has a, wonderfully way, a wonderful way of, of muddling through. And they will just complete, they will continue to muddle. That's another prediction I am going to make. A European muddle through 2012. Uh, it will not turn into a crisis. I don't think Greece is going to be allowed to default. Uh, so that crisis is going to, sl- it, it, it's, it's not going to go away, but it's not going to create huge problems. Are you with me? So in terms of the economy, what we are likely to see over the next year is enough improvement that Obama can, the president can at least, at least claim credit for getting us out of the terrible predicament of the Great Recession and point to in a positive direction. What about politics in terms of campaign finance? One big question mark hanging over this election is the role of the super PACs. And what we've seen in the Republican primaries so far is something that I have never seen in my lifetime. And that is a relative handful of people. I mean, the reason that Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum and even Ron Paul are holding on is because of five people five individuals. And if you look at Romney's super PAC, basically 75% of that is from 40 individuals. And all of this money is, 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 is more than the money that the campaigns officially are spending for, campaign, for their campaigns, uh, primarily commercials. So you've got super PACs that are spending more than the campaigns, and the super PACs are dominated by uh, people, I mean, literally, this group of people in the front row, in terms of numbers. Uh, never before, never before have we seen this. Uh, well, we saw something approximately like this in the Gilded Age, in the last decade of the 19th century. Uh, and we saw it uh, really prompt major reforms, major progressive reforms in this country. Uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, the great jurist uh, and Supreme Court justice, once said, we can have a democracy in this country or we can have great wealth concentrated in the hands of very few people, but we cannot have both. Now, he said that during the progressive era when a lot of Americans were becoming very concerned about the great concentration of income and wealth and its effect on our democracy. I do not think that we're going to see anything like campaign finance reform anytime soon, but I do think that what's happened in the Republican primaries and what is likely to happen in the general election, and the president, as you know, has embraced his own reluctantly I think he felt that he had to. I wish he hadn't, but I think he felt that he had to. And he's surrounded by people who have much better kind of inside political instincts than I do. Uh, He has embraced his own pack, his own super pack. And so we're going to have uh, super rich, a handful of relative handful of super rich Democrats battling a relative handful of super rich Republicans in terms of funding these elections. Nevertheless, I think, again, the president is going to do quite well. Uh, Another thing in his favor is that the Republicans really do not like Mitt Romney. Now, 
I know Mitt Romney. Uh, he, I, uh, I, one of my great regrets in life is I, I, I ran for the Democratic nomination for governor in 2002 in Massachusetts. Uh, I did not win. But going into the last two weeks, going into the last two weeks of that election, I was running neck and neck with the person who ultimately became the Democratic nominee. There were six of us. Uh, I came in second. I, I think I... Can I... Do you mind if I get into this? It's a little off. No, it's not really off. I... I would have won, my campaign manager said, if I simply, we ran out of money. He said, put your house, get a second mortgage on your home. And I said, no. <laughs> now, if I had said yes, not only does my campaign manager, but a lot of people I respect said, I could have won the Democratic nomination. Now, if I won the Democratic nomination, I could have whipped Mitt Romney. <laughs> I mean, I really... I could have... So if he, in the unlikely event, becomes president, it is because I was too much of a skinflint to put a second mortgage on my house. I'm sorry. But here's what really worries me. Not so much the election coming up, what really worries me is that we've got some very big structural problems in our economy and in our society. And this election is not going to see proposals that are large enough to deal with these structural problems. I'll explain why in a moment, but just so we're all together. One of the biggest structural problems I've alluded to already, and that is the extraordinary impact of concentrated wealth and income on our democracy. Something we have not seen in this country for over a hundred years. Behind that is the fact that in structural terms we have a larger and larger percentage of our population that because of globalization and because of technological change are simply not sharing in the gains from economic growth. We, again, in this country, have not witnessed this kind of acceleration of concentrated income and wealth since the 1920s, and by some measures, since the Gilded Age of the 19th century. Now, is this a problem over and above its effect, potentially, on undermining our democracy? Some people would say yes. I teach a course in this. I try not to impose my own views. But it seems to me, historically, there is a danger that when a country becomes completely unbalanced in terms of the allocation of income wealth, in, the, in this fundamental structural way, then you begin to lose the sinews of social connection and solidarity that define a society. You have a very wealthy group that begins to secede from the rest of society, pay less taxes, not even see anybody who's not wealthy, and you've got a lot of other people who, because they're not getting ahead, grow resentful and angry and insecure. And that resentment and that anger and insecurity festers and becomes the kind of fertile ground in which demagogues take hold and take root. 
using the politics of blame, resentment against immigrants, against foreigners, against gays, against the poor, against people who are different, some even against the rich. But the politics of resentment begins to dominate political discourse because people are looking for scapegoats and it is very easy for demagogues to find them. And we've seen that before in history. And frankly, that's what worries me. If we cease to become a society in which we all feel we're all in it together, we pay a huge price. The proposals that we are hearing from the Republican candidates are not meeting this structural challenge. In fact, they are going in the opposite direction. They basically, as I said before, want to reduce taxes on the rich and reduce taxes on corporations uh, and cut social programs and cut education. You have a kind of trickle-down effect, but it's not trickle-down economics. It's trickle-down from government deficits at the federal level to ending all kinds of revenue sharing that has helped the states. Meanwhile, the states because of their constitutions, 49 out of 50 states cannot run deficits, which means the states are still, even this year, even coming out of recession, the states are still cutting social programs, cutting back education, making it harder and harder for young people to take full advantage of their native talents and abilities and make something of themselves. The whole idea of equal opportunity is being thrown out the window. I wish I could say to you that the president's proposals meet the challenge that I've outlined, but they really don't. And it's not his fault entirely. I will get that to that in a moment. But the president is essentially saying in his new budget, and what, uh, these budget documents are not anything but frameworks. They are not real. They're not really political documents because everybody knows these budgets are not going to be enacted in an election year. They are simply statements. They are articulations of and frameworks for understanding what it is a particular candidate or president wants to do. And what the president is doing is the right thing in terms of the direction he's going in. He does want to end the Bush tax cuts uh, for the wealthy, that's exactly right. He should do that. He's talking about a so-called Buffett rule, which is kind of a, an alternative minimum tax for people who are very wealthy, but he's been very vague about what that means, but that's a step in the right direction. He is talking about more investments in education and in job skills and in infrastructure and also in basic research and development. That's all good. But it's not nearly, in terms of the budget he is proposing, it's not nearly on a scale that is commensurate with the degree of structural challenge we are facing in this country. I wish, for example, that he had said, why don't we simply go back to the tax structure and the tax rates we had in this country between 1945 and 1980? where the top 1%, for example, was paying at a 70% marginal tax rate. I mean, under Dwight D. Eisenhower, the top 1% was paying a 91% marginal tax. I'm not saying go back there. But it is not 
radical to say, just go back to the first three decades after the Second World War, when in fact yearly growth in the American economy was faster than the yearly growth we've had over the last 30 years since the Reagan tax cuts. The idea somehow that high marginal tax rates, and let me emphasize these are marginal taxes. We're not talking about 70% of everybody's income. We're talking about over a certain threshold, 70% over that threshold. We ought to have more tax brackets at the very top. We still are, are stuck in a kind of industrial age tax system where the top bracket is what, about 370,000, 380,000. And make the capital gains tax equal to the income tax. So we don't have this giant loophole at which we're paying enormous amounts of money to people who are accountants and tax consultants who are trying to make income look like it's capital gains so it fits into the 15% bracket. And remake public education. Look at the, I mean, how can we in California having the leading edge companies and industries in the world, Apple and Facebook and Hewlett Packard and basically, and Google and, and all of these other companies, American companies, world companies want to be here in California. And we've got the most advanced venture capital industry in the world here in California. And we've got the entertainment industry, the center of the global entertainment industry here in California. And yet we have gone in California from having the best educational, public educational system in America 35 years ago to now 49th in America. How can that possibly be? California is a microcosm for what is going wrong in this country. Equal opportunity is a joke, a bad joke, when you have the 49th worst, or 49th best, almost second worst educa public educational system in the country. And when you take your best system of public higher education in this entire country, what it was, and you subject it to the kind of budget cuts that California have subjected the University of California to, So the kind of structural changes we are talking about are major investments in education. With, yes, in the classroom, do ask for accountability. Do demand the teachers show performance, not in some rigid, limited way, according to some rigid, limited set of formulas, but at least show that students are getting something and getting something back. Have early childhood education, which of all the investments that are public, early childhood education has shown unambiguously to have the biggest punch, the biggest result. And I could go on and on. Reinstitute, Glass-Steagall. Make sure that the banks, the biggest banks, are broken up so that they're of a limited size, so that they cannot repeat what they are and have been doing. You know, I had a, a conversation with somebody I served in the administration uh, with, uh, whose name uh, shall not uh, pass my lips because I don't want to blame him. Uh, he was Secretary of the Treasury. 
And he has the same first name as I do. Uh, but I asked, I asked him, I said, well, why did we have, a, why did Wall Street explode? Why did we have all of this uh, terrible uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, chaos uh, in, in, in 2007, 2008 that led to the bailout? And, and why, why did that happen? And he said to me, well, it was a perfect storm. It, it was just a perfect storm, just a, a collection of things that would never, you would never expect in any one of them to happen, but they just, it, they all came together, a perfect storm. And that perfect storm mentality is still there on Wall Street. They don't believe that there is something in the way Wall Street actually was organized and behaved in terms of the risks that Wall Street was taking on. And how those risks were rewarded. They don't believe to this day that there's something intrinsic about the way finance was run that created the problem. And they are still fighting Dodd-Frank. Barney Frank is somewhere on this campus tonight talking about something other than Dodd-Frank. Uh, but I can tell you, Wall Street is determined to eviscerate the Dodd-Frank financial regulation bill. So in terms of structural changes, one thing that the president should be calling for is even stronger financial regulations, such as I've outlined. But why is he not doing this? My final point tonight, and then we'll turn it over to your questions. I think one of the major reasons why Barack Obama, just like Bill Clinton, did not go further in terms of structural changes that are desperately needed in this country. I haven't even mentioned the environment. That's another issue that we have to deal with in terms of structural, fundamental structural changes necessary to the survival of this society, if not this planet. One of the major reasons is there was not enough. There were not enough of us pushing hard enough. By that I mean that nothing good happens in Washington. And I can tell you this because I was there. Nothing good happens in Washington regardless of who's there, who's elected there. Nothing good happens in Washington unless people outside Washington are mobilized and energized and organized sufficiently to make sure it happens. In 1936, when he was running for re-election, Franklin D. Roosevelt confronted, a, 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 I think a, it was in Chicago, some woman said to him, Mr. President, if you're re-elected, and I hope you are, but I'm going to vote for you only if you promise me to do this and this and this and this and this. And she outlined a bunch of things that she wanted him to do in his second term. And Franklin D. Roosevelt turned to her and said, Ma'am, I would like to do every one of those things, but you must make me. What did he mean, you must make me? What he meant is that she and everyone around her and everybody she knows and millions of other Americans had to be sufficiently organized and energized and mobilized around that agenda to make it possible for Franklin D. Roosevelt to cut through all of the entrenched interests 
even during the Great Depression, to get done what had to be done. Because the entrenched interests will lock politics in a way that it is now being locked down unless people outside are mobilized. And so when I talk to people around the country and people come up to me and say, oh, I'm so upset and Obama didn't do this and and nothing is happening, I ask, well, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are you getting out of your bubble? How many people, how many Republicans have you talked to today? Marjorie. (laughs) Two. You talked to two Republicans today. Good for you. (laughs) How many people from Oklahoma or Nebraska or South Dakota or Texas have you talked to in the last week? Zero? You see what I'm getting at. We've got to get out of our bubble, and we've got to really not only organize and mobilize, but we've also got to talk to people who disagree with us. And we've got to convince them. A lot of them have their minds made up, but there are an awful lot of people out there who are independents and others who don't really understand the issues terribly well. We've got to make sure that we understand the issues too. If we want Barack Obama, who I think is going to get a second term, to be able to do the kinds of things that must be done to take our democracy back and also make an economy that is working for everyone, it requires a level of mobilization that we have not yet seen, I have not yet seen. I think he's a very, very talented and an extraordinarily able president. But he needs us in a way we have not yet served. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. That was great. Um, I'm going to start by asking you about a bunch of things that are going on in America right now. Let me start with the Occupy movement, but also ask you about the Tea Party movement. What do these movements tell us about American politics, and what are their promise, and what are their dangers? Henry, I think that what the Tea Party movement and also the occupiers uh, have shown is a degree of anger and frustration uh, out there in the country generally. And and, uh, there are many, for every Tea Partier and for every occupier, there are presumably legions of people who are not out there actually organizing and demonstrating. But there's a degree of of anger and frustration out there that uh, is related, I believe, in different, slightly different ways, but related to uh, this broad sense that the game is rigged, that kids cannot nearly do as well as their parents, that somehow uh, our democracy and our economy are not w- working as they should work. Uh, one little anecdote. I was on uh, this ABC show called This Week uh, debating Paul Ryan uh, in December. And we were talking about the question of uh, the Tea Partiers and uh, the Occupiers. Uh, and his point was that the Tea Partiers 
and he believed the government should shrink primarily, and I kind of pushed him on this, and he actually said it, mainly because he did not believe that government was capable of governing without being the tools of special interests, like, for example, Wall Street and corporations. And I said to him at the time, well, wait a minute, if you get rid of government, because you're afraid that government is going to be necessarily the tools of Wall Street and corporations and other special interests, well, then all you're left with is Wall Street and corporations special interests. I mean, is that really better for the people than having some sort of government that at least has the potential for uh, reflecting what could be the public interest? And I won that debate. <laughs> no, I don't know. But I, but I think it's, I, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that the Tea Partiers have that view because it's not that far removed from the same skepticism and cynicism that many people who call themselves occupiers have. Yeah, the, the Tea Party people dislike Wall Street almost as much as the occupiers, yep. which is very interesting. Uh, what role can unions play in all of this? Is there a role left for unions as they've gotten smaller and smaller? You were Secretary of Labor. Presumably you've thought a lot about unions. Uh, well, uh, unions now in the private sector are fewer than 7% of the private sector workforce. Uh, by contrast, in the 1950s, uh, unions represented about 33 to 35% of private sector workers. Uh, so you don't have very much power uh, in the union, so-called union movement. You don't have enough, it's not even a movement in, in many respects. The UAW, Henry, agreed uh, not too long ago that new workers coming into the big three would get half the wages, $14 an hour, of uh, new workers, uh, new entrants into the big three five years ago. Uh, well, the $14 an hour is not all that different from what service workers get in this country, and it's, it, it, you, it's not, uh, the UAW is still a, uh, a, a worker that, a union that represents the workers, but the UAW had to do that because of the competition coming not from Japan, but from non-union plants in the United States. Uh, I guess my only point is that uh, in economic terms, unions are not strong enough to do much, uh, certainly in manufacturing. I think their biggest future is in the personal service sector of the economy. Retail, restaurant, hotel, hospital, surface transportation, uh, some of the construction trades, uh, child care, particularly, particularly with regard to the uh, big companies, the chains, the hospital chains, uh, the retail chains, uh, some of the big office chains. Uh, that's where unions could make a difference, and workers are not competing against uh, foreign workers, and they're not competing against even technology, because the essence of most of those personal services is personal attention. You mentioned manufacturing. You recently said that manufacturing will not return. At the same time, places like Germany do have something of a manufacturing sector, and certainly that's a place where there can be somewhat reasonable jobs. Uh, what can, is it really the case that manufacturing is not going to return? Is there some role that can be played here? What about green energy jobs and manufacturing uh, green kinds of technology and so forth? Well, when, when people talk about manufacturing, most of the time they're talking about or thinking about the assembly line, uh, that labor-intensive, relatively lower skill assembly line that did not demand a four-year college degree and did not demand very high-tech skills. 
uh, that's not coming back. Mm. Uh, if you look in a modern factory today in the United States, and there are some, uh, most of them are robotics and numerically controlled machine tools, uh, and you have a, a few technicians sitting behind computer consoles controlling all of these people. Uh, in Germany, you do have very highly precision uh, manufacturing, manufacturing that demands extremely high-skilled workers, and the German educational system is geared toward uh, a technical education if you're not going on to a gymnasium a four-year college, uh, and uh, we don't have anything like that. Should we have something like that? I think that? we should. I, it's difficult to, to generate that. A, it's difficult to do it out of whole cloth. I mean, it's not in our tradition. Uh, we don't like the idea of segregating students at the age of 11 to 13 and saying, well, you're going to be a precision technician and you're going to be uh, somebody who's a knowledge worker going to a four-year college. Uh, it, it, it runs against our grain, and I think for good reason. There are, there are, things, there are people called late bloomers. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Germany does do that right. And because it does it, and because it has very strong unions, and those unions are uh, tied in with government in various ways and with corporations, uh, it turns out that uh, Germany has not succumbed to the same inequality we have. German wages continue to rise at a very healthy rate. Unemployment is fairly low, uh, and has been low, uh, even through the Great Recession. Uh, and uh, the top 1% in Germany uh, unlike in the United States, where the top 1% is taking home about 20% of total income, in Germany, the top 1% is still taking home about 11%, which is what they were taking home in the 1970s and 1980s. So how do you change this? Uh, have we seen, for example, recently with the uh, recession, a change in the natural unemployment rate? Is it going to be the case that no longer is it at 4 or 5%, that it's going to be at 7 8%? Because we simply don't have a workforce that can really get the jobs. And then I, I know that there's one person here who said, uh, what do you tell students right now about the future of jobs in America? Well, look, uh, we're going to have jobs. Jobs will come back. The problem is that many of those jobs, if not most of them, are going to be in the personal service sector, and they're going to be very low-paid jobs. Uh, there are many people now who, in order to keep their jobs, are uh, settling for lower wages and or lower benefits. Uh, there are many people who have been, uh, who have lost their job and are now in the contingent work sector. Uh, they are making money, but they're not making nearly as much as they were making before. So the trend and the worrisome trend is not so much job loss, it's wage loss. It's that you've got this large and growing sector of the population who, in terms of their wages, and even if you include benefits, they're going nowhere. In fact, they are arguably, because uh, uh, if you adjust for inflation, their, their, their compensation is actually heading downward. What do I say to college graduates? Uh, well, Berkeley students who are, who are seniors or even juniors are going to face a hard job market. It's going to be harder uh, for them to find the job they want. They're going to have to search longer, but they're not going to have a problem. Uh, they are being trained to be knowledge workers. They're being trained to identify and solve problems. Uh, that They will be in demand, uh, and they will get good wages and good jobs. But will we go back to something like the old Humphrey Hawkins goal of 4% unemployment? Is that even something anybody should think about? I think we can go back to what's well, not just uh, Humphrey Hawkins. I mean, we, we had 3.5% uh, unemployment in much of the country uh, in the late 1990s, uh, 22 million net new jobs. 
mainly because I was Labor Secretary. Um, no, it was mainly because Alan Greenspan decided that he was not going to worry about inflation. He understood that uh, globalization and technological change were uh, basically a guard against inflation. There was not going to be wage price inflation. Unions were, were much too weak for wage price inflation. And so Alan Greens Greenspan did something that was very important. He decided to let the economy uh, go as fast as it possibly could. And he got unemployment down to 3.5%, which actually raised the wages of people at the bottom. If you look at uh, what happened over the long term uh, to wages in the bottom 20%, there's been no improvement except for the late 90s when you got down that low. I think we can do that again. I don't think that's out of the question. The problem is what's the baseline from which you begin that? And my concern is that so many people will have dropped so far in terms of their wages, uh, not to mention joblessness, but just in terms of just keeping their, their job or getting a job, they will have to settle for such low wages uh, that even though you may get a wage increase because the labor market gets very tight, eventually it's still not going to compensate for those losses. You, you mentioned gas prices. Uh, do you worry what might happen in the Mideast, in Iran, or something like that? Could that be a surprise that could hurt Barack Obama's re-election chances? It, it could, uh, and I'm sure people in the White House are looking at that very carefully. Again, it's, if you look at supply and demand, it's not so much that Iran uh, is, uh, is a major contributor to global uh, oil prices. Uh, in fact, the demand for gas is actually lower now. Uh, than it was uh, uh, two or three years ago. Uh, the, the, the problem is that you've got, uh, I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to use the word speculator advisedly because these, this is a futures market. Uh, this is the way the market is organized. There's nothing, people are not doing anything bad. Uh, but given that so many bets are being made on higher crude oil prices, both European crude and the U.S. crude, uh, it's, it's having a negative effect on, on gas prices. And, and that could, again, as I said before, that could end immediately. I think what Obama may have to do to prick that bubble is to threaten to use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Mm -hmm. Not now. I wouldn't advise it now. But if it looks like gas prices are getting out of control and the speculative pressures are building, the only way to lance that is to, is to threaten to use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So let, let's step back from all this. The Republicans would say the answer is more laissez-faire. Let's let get, get government out of all of this. We certainly hear this from Ron Paul in the extreme, but we also hear it from Paul Ryan, who you were debating, and also Mitt Romney. Uh, you would argue that government has a role to play, but Ryan would come back and say, gosh, the trouble is that government is in the thrall of all these special interests. And then even tonight you said you're worried about Citizens United, which is, in fact, a way that government gets to be in thrall to special interests. Is there a way? And then you said that Citizens United is not going to be overturned anytime soon. Is Paul Ryan maybe right at least for a while? How well, do we get out of this? I, I think that we've got to uh, do several things with regard to uh, campaign finance reform. Uh, consistent with Citizens United, we can still have, so far, legally, I mean, the Supreme Court has not 
decided this one, uh, we can still have uh, campaign finance, uh, public financing of campaigns. Uh, we can still have full disclosure. I mean, Congress has not passed the Disclosure Act, but we can still require full disclosure of who's contributing uh, to all of these. Uh, even even the uh, the four the five hundred one c fours that Karl Rove and others are running, not and not just the super PACs. Um, we can uh, uh, also hope that the president appoints Supreme Court justices, uh, all he needs is one who will, I mean, remember, uh, Citizens United was 5-4. I mean, all, all we're talking about is one Supreme Court justice that, uh, that moves to the other side. And uh, I don't know that those five Republican justices are all going to stay there forever. Although a lot of them are pretty young. Yes. Clarence Thomas, Scalia, Roberts, Alioto, Alito. Uh, who are we like? Kennedy. Kennedy, yes. Kennedy might be the only one who would retire, but he's, and he could make a difference, yes. Could. Okay. And so Kennedy is a swing vote. I, I, you know, Kennedy is not na- nearly as rigidly ideological right. as the others. Right. I mean, it's more likely the Democrats are going to leave the Supreme Court, I think, given the age structure. Ginsburg, for example, or somebody like you're that. You're just a bowl of laughs. I, I'm sorry. Opinion. I mean, hey, you're the guy who was saying all this stuff about Well, I think, look, and I think Citizen United is a huge <laughs> problem. I just want to make the point, I think there are ways, that there are other things that can be done but the, the, the general point that I want to make about all of this is that it's not so much the size of the government that is the issue. It's who government is for, mm-hmm. who government is, is actually working for. And when you talk about even the budget deficit, uh, well, why do we have a big budget deficit in the out years? We, we, it's mostly a combination of an aging uh, baby boomer cohort uh, combined with health care costs that are going through the roof. Why can't we do anything about health care costs? Partly because we've got a uh, big pharma uh, industry, a pharmaceutical industry that absolutely refuses to allow Medicare to use its bargaining leverage to get down drug prices, refuses to allow us to get drugs from Canada. Uh, We've got a hospital system and an insurance system that refuse to allow us to have a public option or Medicare for all, uh, which would be much cheaper than having this all run by a private insurance system as it is right now. Uh, so one of the reasons why one of the reasons why we are we are faced with huge budget deficits is the same special interest dominance as we have in so much uh, so much else of the con- uh, of our of our government. Um, uh, in other words. Uh, instead of talking about this as a big government versus small government issue, we should be talking about this is, uh, as, a, as a question of government's accountability to democracy. And, uh, and that's what uh, really is at stake here. Well, so let's return to the muck of politics. How is Barack Obama going to run his campaign in the fall? And do you think there's a chance he could make an argument uh, that will allow him to get some kind of support for the kinds of policies you're talking about? Well, he, can, he, he did. Read again, if you haven't, uh, that, uh, that speech, that uh, December 6th speech. Asawatomi. Uh, Asawatomi in Kansas. Because it, 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 it was not only, in my view, his best speech, but it did outline a worldview that is, to my way of thinking, very accurate about what is wrong mm-hmm. with our democracy and what is wrong with our economy. Uh, the question is how how willing and able he feels he can be to push those themes into concrete uh, uh, political objectives and programs during the course of the campaign. If Mitt Romney is his opponent, 
he may be more able or may feel more able and willing to do that than if his opponent is, say, Rick Santorum. Uh, Mitt Romney is the epitome of, uh, the, of, of the plutocrat in America and the epitome of uh, everything that not only Citizens United foresaw, foresaw uh, but what has gone wrong with, uh, uh, with the abuse of wealth and power in this country. Let me, let me end with this question, because I've heard you speak eloquently about, about this, uh, is that some of what we see these days is definitely the politics of resentment, and it's, it's worrisome, it seems, when we hear it. But I hear, I've heard you speak about the importance of solidarity and how that's really a fundamental value that has to underlie politics. Uh, is it really possible for us to have more solidarity in this country, to have a sense that it's important for the rich to pay their fair share of taxes, uh, for all of us to help those who are downtrodden, for all of us to feel a sense of, uh, of commitment to the country that involves helping one another is that possible? Of course, it's today? possible. In fact, it is. It is. It is necessary. But I think it is uh, the product, usually, of the country going through some sort of stressful period together. Uh, we saw it in the, in, you know, the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, we saw it in the Cold War. Uh, we could have seen it, it seems to me, after, uh, right after 9/11. Uh, because it's in those moments... And why didn't we? Well, we, we didn't, because in, in my humble opinion, we didn't have the kind of leadership that asked us to do anything other than go shopping. But, <laughs> but, but, but we have in this country, I think, a, a two kinds of patriotism, if you were. Uh, one is a kind of negative patriotism, in which uh, we're the best. Uh, it, it's, it's a very zero-sum uh, kind of view of the world. Uh, it's very xenophobic. Uh, it's, kind of na- it's very nationalistic. Uh, and uh, it's, it brings out uh, some, uh, some very negative aspects of our national character. But there's also a positive aspect to patriotism in which we feel that we have mutual obligations to one another as citizens of the same society. And we have felt that before with the right leaders, and under the right circumstances, Henry, we can feel it again. Uh, and we must, if we're going to actually embrace and take on the challenges of the future. We have to. Thank you, Robert Reich. Thanks. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.